one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 240. Manoel's Constantinople. The last time we looked around the capital, it was 1025 AD, and it was episode 167 of the podcast. We won't be going into the same level of detail today, but it's important to take note of a few developments which will help us understand the narrative better. I actually flagged up two of these in that episode. The move of the imperial family from the Great Palace to the Palace of Lachernae, and the repopulation of the land along the Golden Horn by foreign merchants. In broad terms, Constantinople has been on the rise ever since the 9th century. The population of the city had grown and grown, now touching the 200 to 400,000 range. That was an astonishing number. Everyone who wrote about their visit to the city commented on its unbelievable size. Unless they'd been to Baghdad, their eyes would never have beheld anything like it. The post-Manzikert collapse in Anatolia had only added to the size of the city. Many rich families from the plateau had fled to the capital, bringing their servants and retainers with them. The population growth which Europe was enjoying during these centuries had also filtered down to Byzantium. Cities across the Balkans were growing organically, and New Rome was amongst them. In fact, by Manuel's day, the infrastructure of the now ancient city was beginning to creak. Some part of the aqueduct of Valens seems to have malfunctioned, the emperor received several petitions complaining that the water supply had become inadequate, even in winter. Manuel had a new underground reservoir constructed on the outskirts of the city, whose contents could then be piped into the channels that still worked. The major highway into the city also became unsafe during this era. This was the road that ran from the Charsianan, or Adrianople Gate, and connected with the Messi in the centre of the city. Apparently, during John's reign, a bog had developed halfway down this road, the paving having given way to mud, which was being trampled hundreds of times a day by men and beasts. According to the petition which survives, merchants were having to drag their animals out with ropes as the mud became harder and harder to traverse. 
In winter, some animals were dying before they could be hoisted out. Doubtless this sort of urban decay went on every generation, and we just don't hear about it. But it's no surprise that this issue arose in the 12th century, as the population of Constantinople expanded significantly. During Manuel's long reign, he undertook plenty of public works around the capital. He repaired both the land and sea walls before the Second Crusade arrived. He commissioned restoration projects on churches, monasteries and imperial residences. And he finally did something about the Column of Constantine. The statue of the city's founder, which had stood proudly above the second hill for eight centuries, finally came tumbling down in 1106. Manuel is responsible for the site that you can see today. He secured the column, restored its upper portions, and placed a cross on top of it, replacing the shattered statue. Manuel was also the first emperor to raise a chain across the entrance to the Golden Horn. He built towers on either shore for this purpose, in response to the Sicilian fleet that had reached the capital during his Italian campaign. Interestingly, Coniates says the original chain stretched across the Bosphorus rather than the Golden Horn, so there may have been multiple attempts to secure the city against Norman attacks. During the course of his reign, the emperor put his stamp on the two urban imperial palaces. As you know, the Great Palace sat in the southeast corner of the city, with the Hippodrome on one side and the sea on the other, while the Vlachernai Palace was found in the northwest corner of the city, looking outward towards Thrace. As you may recall, Alexius's mother, Anna Thalassini, had been in charge of the city during the early years of her son's reign. She had made Vlachernai her base of operations, instituting a strict, almost monastic atmosphere. She may have done this deliberately, moving away from the great palace in order to better establish the new regime. The Komnenoi did not abandon the great palace. It still retained many of its administrative and ritual functions, but they did make Flachernai their main residence. It was here that they actually lived as a family. Flachernai was a more flexible site. It wasn't boxed in by the sea, which allowed each generation to build new rooms and towers and generally expand the complex. This move from one palace to another rather fitted the change in the style of government. The great palace remained in place as the official seat of the ruler, while Vlachernai became the house of Komnenos, the place where the new aristocracy would gather to make decisions. Back at the great palace, a new Persian-style pavilion was built in order to welcome Muslim guests, like the Sultan of Iconium. It was felt that a non-Christian visitor should have their own specific accommodation, since so many of the existing rooms were plastered with Christian iconography. The movement of much government business to Vlachernai prompted new buildings to sprout up in the northwest of the city. Though the mass of the population still lived in the centre, some now saw the advantage of moving closer to the real source of power.
This part of the city, as you may recall, was largely farmland. This allowed members of the new aristocracy to found monasteries or build mansions in this part of the city, several of which still stand today. Monasteries tended to grow rich in this period. They were usually endowed with lands outside of Constantinople to support their work, as well as gifts from within the city, like the right to sell their produce tax-free or to control landing stages along the Golden Horn. The largest of these new monasteries was the Pantocrator, founded by John Komnenos and set to become the Komnenian Mausoleum. It sat high up on the city's fourth hill, looking down on the Golden Horn. And it was the Golden Horn that had seen the greatest change during this era. When I first described Constantinople to you, I talked all about the Golden Horn, the inlet of sea which meant the city was surrounded on three sides by water. Shielded from the winds of the open sea, the Golden Horn was a lovely still patch of water, beyond ideal to act as the port of a major city. Naturally then, the Golden Horn was the site of the Empire's fleet and its commercial vessels back in the 4th and 5th centuries. But in the wake of the outbreak of plague during Justinian's reign, the Golden Horn was largely abandoned, and ports on the southern shore of the city became more popular during the 7th to 9th centuries. By 1025, the Golden Horn was back in business, though. The growing population needed more food, and so the ports and landing stages along the Horn began to boom again. In order to keep the peace, the government initially settled foreign merchants along this shore, separating them from the native traders in the south. At that time, this included Rus, Muslim and Jewish interests, as well as some from the maritime republics of Italy. By Manuel's day, as you know, it was the Italians who dominated the capital's trade, and it was they who'd arrived in significant numbers to live and work on the Golden Horn. This had been encouraged, of course, by Alexius's treaty with Venice in 1082. We covered this initial concession in episode 201. It included the gift of a certain area along the Golden Horn that would become the possession of the Venetians. This included landing stages, warehouses, factories, shops and houses. The key concession, though, was the waiving of the tax, which all merchants had to pay to the authorities. This was calculated at 10% of the total value of the goods on each ship. With this tax removed, Byzantium instantly became the most desirable location for Venetian trade. The merchants of Venice could now undercut their rivals' prices and store merchandise safely in their warehouses on the Golden Horn. However, it seems that to make up for the loss of revenue, the Roman authorities insisted on charging those who did business with the Venetians 10% of the transaction, which kept a lid on Venetian investment in the empire for a while. The lid was blown off, though, when John Komnenos renewed their privileges in 1126. John agreed to stop charging those doing business with the Venetians. Removing this tax saw Venetian merchants begin investing heavily in trade with the Romans. We can actually see this process at work in the Venetian documents which survive. 
One of the best documented merchants was a man named Romano Merano. He arrived in Constantinople in the 1150s as a lowly trader of timber, but soon speculated in ventures in the Aegean, and 15 years later was able to rent his own wharf on a six-year lease. This cost hundreds of gold coins, indicative not only of the wealth he'd amassed, but also the expected return on his investment. He would soon begin sailing for Alexandria, bringing goods from Egypt and the Holy Land directly to the Golden Horn. Both John and Manuel agreed to expand the Venetian quarter when they renewed the treaty. And with all this money flowing in, this strip of land became one of the busiest and most densely occupied in the city. I've put up C. Placidus's map of Constantinople again to show you where all this was taking place. By 1160, the Venetian quarter was a warren of bakeries, mills, joineries and workshops. Churches and warehouses loomed above the crowd of smaller buildings, but at its centre was a shopping arcade, lined with trading stalls, money-changing tables, butchers and candle-makers. This market was now one of the major shopping centres of Constantinople. Though this obviously benefited the Venetians, it also meant cheaper produce for ordinary citizens and dozens of Byzantine businesses which flourished in cooperation with the Italians, particularly those who made rope, oars and other naval gear which the Italians were in constant need of. Much smaller versions of this quarter could be found at a dozen Byzantine ports. The Venetians now bought grain from Thessaly, silk from Thebes, olive oil from Corinth, salt from Corfu, and wine and cheese from Crete. At each port, a hundred people or more would now reside permanently in a small enclave. It was usually centred on a church whose priests played the vital role of storing the scales used in commercial transactions, and thus guaranteeing their fairness. The Venetian quarter in Constantinople was obviously the biggest settlement of all, with thousands of permanent residents. As we'll soon discuss, Pisan and Genoese quarters would follow, meaning at the height of the sailing season there might be as many as 10,000 Italians on the Golden Horn. Modern historians still debate the effect these arrangements had on the Byzantine economy. In general, it seems to have been positive, increasing trade, encouraging more investment in the empire, and stimulating work for native Byzantines. The cities of Greece were the main beneficiaries. Phoenician demand allowed whole industries to become more specialised. The silk weavers of Thebes became so famous that they were a target for the Norman attacks we covered in episode 234. No Byzantine source mentions the economic advantages which the Venetians enjoyed as a problem for the Roman state, so we assume that it wasn't. There obviously were Byzantine merchants who resented them, but the Venetians weren't everywhere. They had little to do with overland trade, few investments in the Anatolian coast, and were barred from entering the Black Sea, so plenty of native Romans continued to make money from mercantile activity. The real problem for the government was that the Venetians were seemingly above the law. I mentioned this back when John Komnenos 
refused to renew their privileges early in his reign. Venetian merchants were regularly accused of offending the dignity of Byzantine officials and aristocrats. The Venetians were not Roman citizens and so technically not subject to the law. Without trade dues to pay either, they could be particularly haughty and had the cash to start making inroads into local society. The Venetian quarter was surrounded by railings meant to designate it as the only space where Venetians could live, but by Manuel's day, Venetians were marrying local women and buying houses elsewhere in the city. Their wealth, open doors, and their strong sense of community meant they were often well supported if confrontations on the street turned physical. Manuel tried to tighten this loophole. Around 1148, he seems to have issued a ruling to make the specific status of the Venetians clearer. He was happy for visiting merchants to be treated as foreign subjects, but not those who lived permanently in the empire. They must accept a hybrid citizenship, part respected alien, part loyal imperial subject. Manuel again adopted a Western concept, that of a burgenses, which in English would be burgesses. This required these Venetians to swear oaths of loyalty to the emperor, a bit like the liege knights who served in the army. These oaths required the Venetians to act like Byzantine citizens while they were resident in the empire. That meant bowing before your betters, obeying the law, and serving in the imperial navy if called upon to do so. We don't have a lot of details on how this system operated day to day, but given what's coming in the narrative, it's safe to say that it didn't always work especially well. Many Venetians continued to behave as if they were a breed apart, and many Byzantines continued to see them that way. Part of what irked the Venetians was that Manuel offered both Pisa and Genoa similar concessions, establishing quarters for them on the Golden Horn, right next to the Venetians. Perhaps not the smartest decision in hindsight. The Pisans were offered a treaty back in 1111, and Manuel extended similar rights to Genoa in 1155. Neither were offered as good a deal as the Venetians enjoyed. Their trade duties were only reduced from the usual 10% down to just 4 The Romans were very keen to keep the naval powers of Italy on side, initially just as allies against the Normans, but increasingly they saw them as carriers of crusaders and supporters of the states of Utremia. It seemed vital to get the Italians to invest in Constantinople and see the Romans as their partners. The Venetians and Pisans managed to get on with each other for a while, but the appearance of a small Genoese colony on the Golden Horn was apparently too much to bear. In 1162, shortly after we paused our narrative, a crowd of Pisans will assault the new Genoese warehouses. Buildings will be destroyed and people injured and murdered. Despite a few Venetians joining in the attacks, Manuel decided to abolish the Pisan and Genoese quarters and leave the Venetians alone. This incident, though, was a serious black mark against the Italians, the government of Constantinople was always anxious about urban rebellion, and even Italian-on-Italian violence was more disorder than they were willing to tolerate. A decade 
from now, when the Venetians again take up arms, Manuel will respond forcefully, and perhaps foolishly. That's it for our sort of of end-of-the-century tour. Hopefully learning a little bit more about the capital, the aristocracy, and Andronicus will help you enjoy the narrative more moving forward. Next week, it's back to that narrative, and a real curious situation. As you know, Manuel had no son yet, and the thought had occurred that he might adopt an heir. So when King Geza of Hungary dies, Manuel will decide that not only should he decide the succession, but that he should make that man his son-in-law, creating the bizarre scenario of one man potentially inheriting the thrones of Hungary and Byzantium simultaneously. Sounds like a great idea to me. Let's see how this one plays out.